Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by attorney Greg Kanan, and we are going to be talking about the top five mistakes artists make with copyright. If you would like to grow as an artist and you can't afford an art class, we've got everything you need here at ArtProf, critiques, tutorials, and professional development. Well, I'm so happy to have Greg Kanan back here again, as he has been here before to talk about copyright for artists. Greg is a New England-based attorney, and he specializes in intellectual property, business law, contract issues for artists, filmmakers, and creative entrepreneurs. And if I were you, I would go to Greg's website because it is a goldmine of information for artists. He's written for Movie Maker Magazine. He also writes a blog about issues, about contracts and copyright that you should all check out. And the cool thing about Greg, in addition to being an awesome attorney, and I speak from experience, he went to art school at RISD and was actually a documentary TV producer before becoming a lawyer. And so, Greg, you understand us, don't you? <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Very much. I don't think there are a lot of attorneys out there who would understand the specificity of issues that are present for artists. And you should all go follow Greg on Instagram. This is all free information that he gives out. So many artists ask me this stuff and I try my best, but Greg is gonna be way better at it when it comes to all of this legal stuff. So go check out his stuff. All right, mistake number one is not having a signed contract in writing. Why does this happen, Greg? <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time in the live stream for the <laughs> reasons why that happens. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, it's not a specific, uh, it's a problem not specific to copyright, but it is a major issue. It is maybe the number one issue that I see with my clients. Um, it, it, I, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I could speculate as to why artists are not getting their, all their transactions in writing. My guess is that it's, it, it's hard and it's, not easy. It's not easy to, to write a contract. It's not easy to read a contract. It's not easy to understand a contract. It's boring. It takes away from the stuff that you're good at, which is the art. Um, and I think there's also, and I know this from my own personal experience that there's, when you have a new, a new client come on board and you want to do work for them and you want to prove how good you are, there's that anxiousness to get started and get going. And, and, um, you know, I, I totally empathize with it. I get it. Um, I've been there myself. I still, I still feel that way often on my own, even, even though I'm a practicing attorney now, I'm not a practicing artist anymore. I mean, I'm a, not a professional artist anymore. Uh, I still do draw and paint and things like that. But um, when a new client comes to me, I still feel that, that initial surge of adrenaline. Yes. I, knew, I got a new, I got, I got one on the hook and now I'm going to get started. <laughs> And right. it, has, it has actually happened to me as a professional practicing attorney where I've started doing the work for the client mm -hmm. before I've gotten a commitment from them, before I've gotten paid from them. So it's, it's still an issue that I'm dealing with as someone who's been uh, practicing law for almost 10 years now. Um, so, um, so I get it. But, um, but it's rampant and it's a problem. And um, I always remind my clients, and I'm going to remind anyone watching the live stream now, that... Um, if you if you're doing art uh, for money, whether it's a full time job, whether it's a part time job, whether it's just this side of a hobby, um, a there's no there's no project and no there's no client who needs anything so quick that you can't slow down and get some sort of um, confirmation in writing about what it is you're supposed to do and how much you're going to get paid for it and when you're going to get paid for it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so there, so yeah don't <laughs> sorry it's just, it's such a big issue and i and i and i don't know how to it's it's almost so it's almost so big that it's um that it's overwhelming because it, it, 75% of my business is this is either writing contracts reviewing contracts or dealing with people who haven't gotten them and i and one of the a good contract a written contract does two things for you one it tells you what you're supposed to do and b it holds people two it holds people the parties accountable if 
something happens, if there's a dispute or if one of the party breaches the contract. And so um, it's, it's tough, but you have to think of yourself not as an artist, but as at least when it comes to doing things for money, you have to think of yourself as a business whose job it is to produce art or produce design or whatever it is that you're doing. And so um, if you start looking at yourself through that lens, I think it, it, you start to put yourself in the mindset of what is my, what does my workflow look like before I even get to putting pen to paper or, or putting paintbrush to canvas or whatever it is you're doing. Um, there's a whole bunch of steps that have to happen before you get there. And um, one of those steps, the biggest step is getting things in confirmation, uh, getting things in writing, I should say. Now, but that doesn't mean every single transaction has to have a full length contract, although I think that is the ideal, um, the best practice. Um, but um, getting anything in writing is better than having nothing in writing. Um, and it happens all the time where a, 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 con a client comes to me and they say, Greg, I ended up doing this work for this guy. And he said he was going to pay me $5,000, but he only paid me $500. And I'll say, okay, let me see the contract. And he'll say, well, I didn't get a contract. And I'm like, so the whole thing was done over the phone. It was all done. For and he'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, okay. So technically that is a legally binding contract. It doesn't have to be in writing to be legally valid. The problem with something that's spoken or a handshake agreement is that it's untraceable. It's unverifiable if there's no witnesses. Um, and the other party can just change their story if they don't like what you're doing. Um, no, no, I didn't agree to that. No, no, I didn't say I was going to give you $5,000. I said, I, I only said I'd give you $5,000 if you did X, Y, and Z and you didn't do X, Y, and Z. So now I'm only paying you $500. Um, so this is why you want something in writing. If, if, if the best you can do is get it in an email, that's still better than nothing, although it's not ideal. Well, Ginger Cell brings up a really good point. Contracts are scary. I think yeah. most of the stuff we're talking about today is scary and it does not get talked about very often. There's a lot of stuff online that is totally inaccurate or unreliable. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of us don't do this stuff because we're just so intimidated yeah. by the whole process. Mm -hmm. And we have a comment here from Fab Geek who says, would having an agreement via DM or email enough, do you recommend writing up a contract even with a written agreement via email and chat? I mean, I, my recommendation is always, and I mean, you don't have to ask this question. My, my recommendation as an attorney is to always get things in like a real professional contract. If you, if that is not possible, if you can't afford it, if it, it if there is a genuine time constraint, um, then getting it in any form of writing is better than no writing. So yes, if, if the best you can muster is like an email chain back and forth. Okay, great. Is that ideal? No. And the reason it's not ideal is because uh, a real contract, a, a, an actual contract written by an attorney um, will contain things that uh, protect you from, uh, you know, if, if the, if the other party doesn't pay you, they don't pay you on time. They don't pay you based on the schedule. If they're claiming ownership over the copyright of the work and you thought you were going to retain it, there's all sorts of little uh, details and intricacies that a contract is going to address that you probably won't address in an email chain. But if if the best you can muster is email, DM through Instagram or TikTok or whatever, that's better than nothing. Yeah. And I, by the way, I agree. They're scary. I don't particularly enjoy doing contracts. There's a reason I get paid to write them and to review them um, because it is hard. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I get it. Anna says, if you're not a lawyer, how do you know if a contract is legit? What should I be looking for? Yeah, because a lot of artists don't have the financial means to ask an attorney to review things. So what do you do if you're in that situation, Greg? Well, there's a couple of things you can look for. Um, one, you look at any provision that um, addresses ownership over the work. Um, so uh, sometimes you'll see a, a term called work for hire or work made for hire. This is them saying to you that you as the artist or the contractor or whatever they're going to call you, um, are not going to retain ownership over the work of, of that you that you that you do for them. Um, you want to look at any provisions dealing with money. You want to look at and so you know I mean most contracts are written in legalese and it's going to be hard to parse a lot of that. But you're going to have to do your best to figure out if 
if that money is contingent upon anything. Um, specifically, you want to look for anything that we would call a satisfaction clause. So if there's any language in the contract that says they don't have to pay you unless they like your work, that's a problem. That's something. Yeah. I mean, these, they're, they're, most states have banned these, but they do show up from time to time. Uh, there's there's a term for this and i'm not going to bore you with it but there's an actual legal term for these kinds of this kind of language and it's it's essentially a promise it's not a promise to pay you it's a promise not to pay you because they're saying if we decide after the fa- after you've completed the work that we don't like the work then we don't have to pay you and so you want to keep an eye out for that um Yikes. you want to make sure that there's some language in there about being able to ship, put the work in your own portfolio. Um, that's a right in America under American copyright law. It is, a, it is a right that you have as an artist that you can take credit for your work and that you can display it in a non-commercial way. So you can put it in your portfolio. Um, yeah. Money, money's the big one timeline and um, scheduling. You want to make sure that a, the ske- if there's a timeline or schedule for delivery um, that you understand it, that it, that uh, that it's even in there. A lot of times they'll they'll um, if you have a longer longer term project, and um, uh, sometimes I see contracts where there isn't a dis- a, a delivery. Uh, it, like in so like if you're going to be doing something over a longer period of time, are you going to be paid? Are you going to deliver things and then get paid for them? Are you going to be paid up front and then uh, so half up front, half and back? Are you going to be delivering product? Uh, every month, every week, you know, so these are the kinds of things you need to pay attention to and keep an eye out for, because that that's going to, it's going to determine whether the contract itself is fair and or enforceable. Mistake number two, not registering your art Mm. with the copyright office, given if you are an artist in the U S now, Greg, I have never done this before and so i guess i'm very guilty of mistake number two and i'll tell you most artists who i work with are the same way so why is this mistake number two if all of us for the most part are doing it um so in the u.s uh copyright is a federal law which means it can only be enforced in federal court uh, and in order to sue somebody for, for copyright infringement, meaning that they've taken your work and used it without your permission, um, in order to sue them, you have to register with the copyright office. So if tomorrow, Clara, for example, you find that a, one of your pieces has been infringed by someone, someone else is profiting off of your work, whether or not they credit you is immaterial as, when it comes to copyright law. But if they're making money off your work without your permission you and you want to sue them for copyright infringement you have to register that work with the copyright office first um it's a it's what we call a threshold issue you can't get in the door without that so that's number one um the reason a lot of artists don't do it i think is i imagine it's there's a number of reasons but one of them is they're not they're not (laughs) they're, they're not aware that that's something they can or should do um number two it can become prohibitively expensive. Now, every time you register a work with the copyright office, um, the fee, the fee changes periodically. I think right now it's $45 for every work. So if you're registering a screenplay, for example, $45 doesn't seem like that, like that much of an expense, but if you're registering, if you're a photographer, for example, and you're registering dozens of works, all of a sudden that $45 can become very expensive. Now, in recent years, the copyright office has become a lot more receptive. You know, the copyright, the copy, the, the original copyright act, well, the original copyright act was written in 1796, but the most recent copyright act was written in 1976. And uh, technology has, ex- has exploded far quicker than Congress is able to keep up with uh, amending the law. And so, when that when the when the last version of the copyright act was writ, was written uh, they weren't they didn't expect this many artists registering this much work um, mm-hmm. and so in recent years the copyright office uh, based on its own authority has made re- a lot of great strides in allowing artists to register multiple works um, for lower fees which is great I, in fact i just have a, a client right now who's a photographer who is going to be able to register up to 750 works for a one fee of $55. So that's great. Um, prior to 2016, that was not possible. He would have had to register them. I, I, 
I think individually. Um, so <laughs> it, it can be very expensive. Um, and, and you know, it's 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 relatively easy. You can do it yourself. You can do it online. Just go to copyright.gov and do it. Um, but you know, it's another administrative thing that you know nobody wants to have to do. But I think if if you're putting your work out there, um, you need to consider heavily uh, the benefits of of registering. By the way, registering your copyright before it gets infringed has the added benefit of um, if it does get infringed later on down the road and you do sue in federal court, that document, it's, a, it's an official government document, that registration, and that carries a, a lot of weight in court. It, it prevents you from having to, to present a lot of evidence on your behalf. So it's, it's, it, it, it uh, has a, a number of benefits that I, I highly recommend uh, artists do it as often as they can. I think you, you have to choose the works that you register for sure. Leslie says, if I have a working name I work under, should I register the name as a copyright or as a trademark? Yeah, trademark wouldn't uh, apply in this instance. Trademarks deal with um, logos, slogans, um, company names. I mean, if, if you if you're work under the trade name and you want to register the, I'm sorry, if you, so if you, if you have a working name, like a pen name or something, and you want to essentially start a business and you want all of the work that you're doing to be associated with that business, that's, you would register that name with the trademark office. Um, but the work itself, if you're, if you're, if you're like an author, for example, and you're operating under um, an alias or a pen name, the the actual work itself would be registered with the copyright office. Anna's asking, how do you do that for each painting yeah so greg let's say i'm a painter mm -hmm. and let's say i produce 24 to 30 paintings a year mm -hmm. do you recommend that a painter registers all 30 as they get produced or do you just say oh this is an image i have it's really popular people tend to repost it i'm just going to register that one yeah i think that's the i think that's the, the way to go um anytime you, the, the official terminology is publish. Once you publish a work, um, that's a work that I, you should heavily consider registering with the copyright office. And when I say publish, I mean make public in any way. So if you are completing a work and you're going to post it on your Instagram page, you're going to sell it on Etsy, you're going to put it on your Behance portfolio page, you're going to do whatever, you're going to make it a version of it public for the world to see, that's a work you want to register. If you're doing 20 works in a series and you're only showing one or two of those works publicly, but the others have are just basically sitting in your studio waiting to be sold or, or displayed in a gallery or something, I, I don't know that I would recommend spending the money and the time registering those works. I think you want to focus on whatever you want to register, whatever you're going to publish. Ginger says, I've read something like if you post on Instagram, it is proof that you had it first or something like that. Is that true? That's, I mean, it, it's, there's an, there's a nugget of truth in there. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, one of the things, one of the key elements of a trade, of, I'm sorry, of a copyright infringement um, dispute would be where the work appeared first. And if the first appearance of a work is on, in, on your Instagram page, then yes, that would be um, a piece of useful evidence um, in a, in a copyright dispute. Yeah. Seven Angelic says, what about your work going international? Oh, yikes, that gets dicey, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Law between different countries. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll be perfectly frank. I'm not an expert in international uh, copyright issue. I mean, there's actually no international copyright law. There's, there's, a, there's two, um, uh, there, there are two international treaties. One's called the Berne Convention and one's called the UCC, I think. And, and they basically govern how different countries apply the copyright law of other countries so the idea is if you are an american artist and your your work is infringed in germany um the question is whose law applies it, it essentially allows um if, if memory serves i i, I want to state here i could be wrong about this because it's been a very long time since i've looked into this but memory serves that you could apply american copyright law in germany that said um, you sort of brush up against the bigger issue with our legal, uh, with the legal system in general, which is that it's one thing to know your rights and another thing to enforce them. And if you're 
if your copyright was infringed in another country, um, you'd have to enforce it or enforce that over there. And that could be a very expensive proposition. Let's go to mistake number three, using other artists' artwork without getting or trying to get permission. This is rampant. Mm -hmm. Cannot tell you, Greg, how many times somebody will tag me on Instagram. I don't know why. It's always a poem that they like to overlay on top of my work. Okay. It happens so often, I can't be bothered. And so yeah. my feeling is unless Target steals it and is making all this money off the t-shirts, I'm not going to bother. But yeah. why is this so important just to try to get permission? Well, this is this is the essence of, of copyright law. Um, in the U.S., the copyright owner, and in, in many cases, it's the artist um, themselves, they, you have a certain group of exclusive rights and one of those rights is the right to uh reproduce the work um and at the heart of copyright law at the heart of all intellectual property right law in in this country is your ability as the artist to profit off of your own work and if people are using your work without your permission that is a pretty classic violation of copyright law that's a classic infringement issue Um, And so I, and I always tell artists when they come to me, if you are going to use the work of somebody else uh, in your own work, what steps have you made to acquire the rights to that? Because you don't have those rights unless, unless the, unless the work has moved into the public domain. In most cases it hasn't, Um, you know, especially if you're using, if you're using work created before 1924, there's, it's very likely in the public domain and then you can use it whatever, however you want. But if your work was created in the last 80 years, actually almost hundred years, you, um, they don't, it belongs to somebody. Um, and if you use it without the permission, they can sue you. They have every right to sue you in this country for copyright infringement. And so I always tell artists, um, it is, you know, there's that, there's that old saying, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, I flip it. it and when it no. comes to using the work of other artists, it is always better to ask permission than to beg forgiveness because by the time you are begging forgiveness, you're also racking up thousands of dollars in, in legal fees to defend yourself um, from a, a copyright infringement lawsuit. So I always, I always tell people tr- get, get permission or at least make a good faith effort to get permission. Don't do a quick Google search and say, Oh, well, I can't find them after 30 seconds. Like really try to find them. Also, I've had people contact me and sometimes I say yes, because yeah. if it's something like a grad student wants to know, oh, can I put this in my thesis presentation? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But if it's somebody saying, can I put it on a mug? I'm like, no, I don't think so. So you might actually be surprised yeah. that sometimes people are happy to have their work used without being compensated, depending on the circumstance. So just try. Now, Flavia says, what about people making NFTs? out of your work. Now, NFTs, it's a whole wild west right now. Nobody knows what's happening. But what would happen, Greg, if I made something, somebody turned it into an NFT and was making money off of it? You could sue them. Um, I I think there's there's an open question about um, whether an NFT is considered a a derivative work, which is one, one of the rights you have as a copyright owner is the right to make derivative work. So if you write a book, for example, a sequel would be considered derivative work. Um, an NFT, you know, given that it's 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 really sort of like a, a digital representation, a digital token representing ownership of a version of a digital asset, it's not really entirely sure what it is. And some lawyers think it's it is considered derivative work, which would then make it a violation of the of the Copyright Act. And others are not quite sure. And so um, I don't have a great answer for you because it's the, the whole concept is still so new. Um, but I, this actually happened to a, a client of mine um, where he found that someone was selling NFTs of, of his work and he contacted the, um, the blockchain where the NFTs were being sold and they took it down. Belle Noir Princess says, what about fan art? Do you need permission to recreate other people's intellectual property? Well, fan art is everywhere. 
what do we do with that? Is Disney going to come after every million picture of Elsa from Frozen? <laughs> I mean, Lord knows they probably could if they wanted to. Um, you know, if, if, if any company on earth had the resources to do that, it would be Disney. Um, I, I think, boy, um, I, this is a dramatic oversimplification because now we're talking about fair use and fair use is a really complicated issue. But I think the question you always want to ask yourself is, am I making money from this? And if I'm making money from this, am I taking money out of the pocket of, of the owner? However, however rich that owner may be. So if you're doing, if you're doing fan art of Disney princesses, yes, the person you're ripping off is a massive multi, multi, multinational conglomeration, but they are still the legal owner of that work. And so the question then becomes, am I taking money out of their pocket that they would otherwise have the legal right to? And if the answer is closer to no than yes, then you're probably fine. And so if you're drawing fan art and posting it on Instagram as sort of like, this is a hobby of mine and I like doing it and you're not really profiting from it, you're, pro you're almost certainly in the clear. I won't say you're definitely in the clear, but because that's, that requires a much more um, detailed analysis. But the reality is that you're probably okay. If you are selling it, then it's a, a dicier question. Um, you could be liable for copyright infringement, but that doesn't always make, make it uh, a guarantee that you're going to be sued for copyright infringement. So, One thing you said in the previous stream was anybody can sue for anything. Yeah. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks because <clears throat> people will say, well, if I do this, I'm safe. But there is no guarantee of that for anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mistake number four, not thinking about your art in terms of business. This is like every artist on the planet. It took me years to get over this mm -hmm. because a lot of us making art is a very personal activity. We mm -hmm. feel very close to the work we're doing. A lot of us feel like we're pouring our souls out. And then to be told, oh, slap a price on this painting. It just feels terrible for a lot of artists. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm not here to psychoanalyze everyone listening to the, to the <laughs> screen, but I can, I can speak from personal experience, which, which is to say that, um, when I was when I was a working artist, when I was a working television producer, I always thought that the hard thing was figuring out the art, that that this was the thing that needed my efforts and energy. But the reality was that's what I was trained to do. That's what I was being paid to do. And that's what I knew how to do. And yes, every art project has its own challenges and difficulties. But I was lying to myself because the hard part was the stuff that I didn't want to do, which is the stuff that I'm trying, you know, I spend now all my time teaching clients to do now, which is all the administrative stuff, do, you know, you know, um, incorporating things like, you know, what kind of business am I operating? Do I have any staff? If I have staff, are they employees or contractors? Getting contracts for not just, you know, outward, you know, like client facing contracts, but inward facing things. So when I hire contractors to do work for me, subcontractors, when I'm hiring vendors to design my website, um, payroll, taxes, all, bank accounts, there's all this kind of ugly, boring stuff that every business has to do and the quicker you adjust to the fact that this is just going to be part of your life, the, be the, the better you'll get at it. And the better you get at it, the faster you'll get at it. And the faster you get at it, the less time you'll have to spend doing it. It's just like any other thing, like any other, um, like any other skill, the more you do it, the better you get at it, the more efficient you get at it. And then the more time you can put into the art. And I understand why that's unappealing for so many artists, but I spend so much of my time as an attorney trying to, turn back the clock for a lot of these artists who have been doing this for professionally for so many years and trying to like get them back into that mind frame. And so, um, so they can help me help them. I do think a lot of this business stuff, like contracts, a lot of it's really scary. I yeah. mean, when I had to face the fact that art prof was getting big enough that I couldn't not tackle all of these things, I was really scared 
having to figure out all of logistics and we don't have the budget that I can hire my own full-time accountant or HR firm or whatever. And it's scary the first time you do it, but it does get easier. And like you said, you do get to a point where like, yeah, do that. Things get automated. And so it does get better. I think Greg, it's the procrastinating part that makes it worse. I'll tell you this too. I don't, I don't represent any big companies. I I do represent a handful of medium sized companies and they're all in a very similar situation where they, they have, they're making enough money that they have to deal with all this stuff, but not so much money that they can have a full-time accountant or a full-time, you know, bookkeeper, or it's all, it's always like, they're just not quite making enough money that everything is a challenge. And I, I, you know, I get it. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I do, I, I try to do my best to help out where I can. I'm an attorney. I'm not, I'm not a money guy. And so um, one of the things that I, I recommend everyone do um, if possible is um, find an accountant who a, you can afford and B you can trust because um, I think that not, taxes is about as scary a thing as there is. And oh. if you're making, if you're making money from your art, you need to have a sense of like h- how you pay those taxes, uh, what you owe, when you owe it. Um, a lot of artists, as I'm, I'm sure you know this, Clara, a lot of artists, a lot of uh, small business owners actually, forget artists, but a lot of small business owners um, pay taxes on a quarterly basis because you, they don't yeah. want to have to owe six grand at the end of the year, um, you know, next April and find a way to like, how am I going to find six grand now? Um, you know, they'd rather pay it in installments over the year. And so um whether you're an actual business or a sole proprietorship, it, it pays to um, stay on top of the money thing, especially. Yes. Gengar says a good accountant is worth more than gold. Well, yeah. a lot of artists, oftentimes we don't want to hire the accountant or the attorney because we look at how much it costs and it costs a lot for a reason because it makes your life so much easier. <laughs> like When I hired you, Greg, I confess, I was really scared to do all the legal stuff and the paperwork and everything. But, oh, my God, like when we started working together, I was like, oh, such a relief. Huge burden just lifted off my shoulders. Yeah. And then anytime I had questions, I'd talk to you and you were so patient with me. And what could have been just a terrifying experience was like, oh, okay, I can do this. And so, yes, it's expensive to hire accountants and attorneys, but if you can even remotely do it, do it because a lot of artists don't. And then it's horrible. It, 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 on average, it costs four to five times more to fix a problem after it's happened than it does to just do it before it becomes a problem. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, when, whenever a client comes to me and they say, I need this contract, how much is that going to cost? And then I tell them and they're like, mm, I'm not sure. And I'll be like, okay, yes, I'm quoting you a thousand dollars, but it's going to cost. But if you do this without a contract and there's a dispute, it's going to cost you five times that much for me to try to solve it for you. <clears throat> and a lot of the stuff that you provide for clients, Greg, <clears throat> is protection. Because when we started ArtProf, I was like, oh, we're just a bunch of people on YouTube. But then when we started getting very high visibility, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't not declare this as an LLC or something because I need legal protection for myself. Because if I had not established ArtProf as an LLC, somebody sued me, they could have taken my whole life away. But because I have an LLC, they could take the business, but not my personal assets. And so... I think sometimes it's a matter of visibility that once you start getting to a point where people notice you, it's a protection issue. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head when, when you start talking about liability. Um, you know, every, every artist does, does things. I mean, I, you know, a, a painter, for example, is going to carry, not going to carry the same kind of liability for their work as maybe an industrial designer who's designing physical products that are designed to be used in the home. Right. So, but they all, you all carry something, some liability somewhere. And if you end up in a dispute and it doesn't have to be a dispute about anything serious, it can be a simple contract argument over whether there was a thousand dollars owed here or there. If you, if you don't have liability protection, which is to say, if you're a sole proprietor, um, you, and you're sued and you don't have insurance, for example, to cover the, the legal costs, you, 
what Clara said was right. They can come after your personal assets. Like if you have a house, they can come after that, your car, a boat, your bank account. One of the things that registering an LLC does, and I don't recommend an LLC for everyone, but it is sort of like the all-purpose business formation entity for most people, for 99% of people. Um, one of the things it does is it, it puts a barrier between uh, you and your personal assets, or them and your personal assets. So they can come after business assets, but they, they can't come after your house. They can't come after your car. And I will say that every artist situation is different. For art prof, the LLC made the most sense because a lot of people say to me, well, why aren't you a nonprofit? Doesn't that fit better with your mission? I'm like, do you have any idea how expensive it is to maintain a nonprofit? An LLC was a quick, easy, straightforward way for me to get legal protection and some artists say, well, I have all this stuff I want to do. Should I form an LLC? And I think the answer you gave people or usually do is if you don't have employees you're paying on payroll, you probably don't need an LLC. Is that accurate? I think, I think if you're someone who, where you have limited overhead. So let's say you're like a graphic designer or an illustrator or a writer or something. And so you don't have a lot of overhead. You don't need an office. You don't need a lot of equipment. Um, the likelihood of you incurring some kind of liability is fairly small and um, you probably don't need to form an LLC. It can't hurt, but it's, it might be a little bit, uh, a little bit overkill. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the things about LLCs is that one of the benefits, if you want to call it that, is that um, they're relatively affordable. Uh, every state charges what they, what they charge. Um, and so, you just have to maintain that fee every year to keep the LLC going. But, you know, if, if, but like I said, if you're doing it, if you're, if you have a limited overhead, if you have limited liability, like meaning you're not creating physical products that you're putting out into the world um, and, and, or you're doing it part-time, I think a sole proprietorship is fine. You probably don't need a, a full business. Um, I, you know, I went, I recently just formed my law firm as an LLC. It was a sole proprietorship for a long time. And I reformed it as an LLC because with more clients, there's a greater chance of liability issues popping up. And so I need to, I needed that protection for myself. And I recommend it for, I would say for most people, once they get to that point when they're going to be doing this either full-time or they're going to be making significant income from it. Gengar says, how would you find a local copyright attorney? Well, I'm in Utah Greg, you're in New England and I hired you. Do you do virtual? I'm, I'm a virtual client. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, um, I, so I live in Connecticut and uh, I don't maintain a physical office space anymore because in almost 10 years of practicing law, I've only had one in-person client. Um, most of my clients are from around New England, but I definitely have people calling from California, from Utah. Um, I have I had a client recently from Hawaii. So you can contact me, um, but if you don't want to contact me, um, you, you should, should though. You should. Um, <laughs> you know, every, every state has a bar association. If you go to the bar association website, um, they usually have lists for different types of attorneys and you can find them there. Mistake number five, doing all the business stuff by yourself or <laughs> the flip side, outsourcing everything without understanding any of it. Let's yeah. start with trying to do everything yourself. I am very guilty of that. Yeah. I did that for a very long time and I still do more than I should, mostly because of budget reasons. Yeah. But you're talking about trying to do all of the contract, all the... Yeah, yeah. This is specific to contracts and copyright stuff. Um, <laughs> so um, it is very common... Uh, for a client to come to me and say, um, I have, I found this contract that I'm online, this template online and I'm using it and I'll look at it and there's stuff in there like from different industries altogether um, that, you know, that are not, you know, I had, I had, a, I'm trying to think exactly what he was, but he was, I think he was an illustrator or like a, like a, like a, I think he was, yeah, he was an illustrator and he came to me and he had used, been using a contract for several years. And I don't know where he found this contract, but there's language in there about like industrial machinery. And I'm like, what, what, like, what are you doing? Like, like, like 
so and this ha- this happens quite frequently where people are using contracts that they just find or that like friends give them that just don't have anything that are either i mean that that was actually a, a better case scenario because it wasn't harmful to him it just didn't apply to anything he was doing but th- it does happen where people come to me with contracts um and there's legitimate language there's language in there that is legitimately harmful to their interest and the one thing you don't want to do is have your own contract you know undermine your your needs and your wants so um so that that's kind of what i'm referring to um obviously you know if you're starting a business you're almost certainly starting it by yourself or maybe with a partner and you have to do everything yourself but I'm, i'm talking about the legal stuff don't do the don't do the legal stuff all by yourself or conversely, if you're going to outsource all of it um, to like an attorney, for example, um, make sure you understand what your attorney is doing. Um, make sure you under, you ask questions. Um, it, 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 it definitely happens where a client will come to me and they'll say, like, just handle it. I don't care. And, yeah, and, and I'm like, no, no, you should care. Like, like you ha- like, let me deal with the tactics, but you should be involved with the strategy. Because this is, I'm still representing you and I need to A, know what you want, how you want to operate and what kind of, what kind of um, face you want to put out there to the world um, and to your partners, but uh, partners, clients, you know, whoever. Um, But I, 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 you know, clients who don't understand what their attorneys are doing end up um, not really knowing what's going on in their own businesses ultimately. And I think that's, that's bad. So I, I know it's kind of seems like a little bit of a, uh, like a, like a paradox there, but, um, or an oxymoron, I don't know what you call it. Precisely. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, you, you have to find the line between knowing what's going on in your business, but not doing all of it yourself and excluding other people and making this and ultimately making decisions that could be harmful to your business because you, you, you thought you could do it all. Well, when we work together, Greg, for legal work for art prof, I just bombarded you with questions. I mean, to the point where I sort of felt like an idiot doing that, but I think it's very unnerving to not know what's going on because you feel so out of control. They, They weren't bad questions. And, and, you know, I mean, it's kind of okay. I mean, like I, I'm, when a, when a client comes to me and asks a lot of questions, they always say the same thing. Like, I feel kind of dumb asking this. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay for you to feel dumb asking, asking about this because yep. I'm the one who's trained to do it and you're not. It, yeah. it, it would be like, you know, me coming to you and, and I, you know, I don't know how to oil paint and being like, I, you know, I, like, look, I can't do this. And like, of course you don't know how to do this. Like there's, there's a reason you're coming to me. I'm going to teach you how to do it. Um, it it's the same thing. And, and so um, it's, it takes, you know, it, ta- it takes a little bit of experimentation to find that line. But I think the people who do find it are, are the ones who, den- who tend to be able to operate long-term successfully. We've got a little bit of time for questions that have been building up in the chat. So let's take a look at this one from Varun. I've seen artists online sell alternative Marvel Disney posters. Some say they do it through an agency that has brought the rights. What is the law around doing this? Can you do this on your own? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it is entirely possible that that they're doing it through an agency who has bought the rights. And in that case, that's that's how they're able to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you were to just do your own poster and you were not going to acquire the rights, um, you could very well be in violation of copyright. So, you know, I, I, again, it begs the larger question about what what kind of profit you're making and um you know, how much profit you're making. And the fair use question is really, it's what we're talking about is fair use here. And it's becomes, it's a very complicated question. There's no good answers to it. I can't give you answers, even if you hired me to give it to you, because fair use is something that we call an affirmative defense, which means you have to be sued in federal court before you can um, assert it as a defense. So um, the, the, the truth of the matter is, um, you have to get you have to get permission. Otherwise, anything short of getting a positive uh, getting uh, permission is uh, copyright infringement. Whether or not you Ian get sued says, is a question. <laughs> Ian says, if I create a painting of a celebrity, would I require their permission before publishing it or putting it up for sale? What should I do if I'm unable to get a reply for a request? Like if I want to do a portrait of Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. I don't have his phone number, which makes me sad. But yeah. uh, 
what's the scenario here? So this is not a copyright question. It's it's more of a, a there's a, a privacy rights question. Um, you're probably okay to be honest. If I, I think the larger question is what is the source for what is the source material for the painting? So it, like if you're gonna if, you, if there's a photo and you're basically copying the photo, that's a copyright question. That's a copyright infringement issue because you're making a derivative work. And if you don't have the rights to copy that photo, that is a copyright violation. But just painting a photo of a celebrity, painting a portrait of a celebrity without the permission is fine because they're in the public, they're in the public sphere. And so they have fewer rights to the use of their image um, than a, a private individual would have. That said, it's kind of I, I don't actually know what the law surrounding that is, the, the case law surrounding that is, what like the saleability of that kind of thing. I'd have to look into that a bit. Maroon says, so does a beginner artist making enough money hire a lawyer full time or as and when needed as a freelance thing? How does one go about it in the beginning? Well, Greg, I know you have some options yeah. where maybe you're not necessarily writing me a contract but I want to talk to you a couple times a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, you know, every, every, every attorney operates differently. Um, I personally, I don't charge hourly rates. I charge flat rates and I charge subscription rates. So if you say, Hey, I just need a contract. I just give you a quote and I do the contract for you. And that's the beginning and end of it. If you need ongoing legal services, I have a monthly rate. Um, but the truth of the matter is it depends on what you need and what the attorney, what the attorney can do. I mean, I often, Sometimes people come to me and they'll say, I need a lot of stuff. And I'll say, well, what's the most important thing? Let's work on that one first and see if we get along. Because I think hiring an attorney is often like, um, like almost like hiring a therapist in a way. It and is. Oh my yeah, God. You need, to, you need someone who you can connect yeah. with and, and vibe with. Just um, And, you know, I, I like to think that I vibe with most of my clients, but, um, you know, every once in a while, maybe it doesn't work out. And so I think you, you need to find an attorney who, who you can work with. Lynn is asking, and this is a big question, which by the way, I would watch the stream we did with Greg about a year ago, because that stream, we really do talk about fair use yeah. in depth. But Lynn is asking if I copy a portion of someone's work and make changes to it, is that legal? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a larger question. It's a, it's a hard, I can't answer it in sort of a short, pithy soundbite. It's a fair use question. Um, and in fact, when, when, you're, when you're trying to determine if, well, actually, let me back up. Assuming you're not getting permission. Because if you get permission, then it doesn't, the question is moot. You can theoretically do whatever you want as long as, as, long as you've had a discussion with the copyright owner about what you're doing and what you're changing. If you're not getting permission and you're just going to take something and use it, um, it, it is in fact a much a, a fairly big question that we have to ask. How much are you using and what are you doing it for? In fact, um, the transformation, we call it transformational quality of, of the work you're doing to that piece of work um, is maybe the biggest factor in a fair use analysis. So um it's, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. And in fact, even if you were to hire me to do that, to make that assessment for you, that's just my assessment. You could go to five other attorneys and they all might come up with different answers. I think the thing to know about fair use is that there's no blanket rules. Yeah, there's there's no, no, this is going to work in every scenario. It's all case by case. Yeah. And the only true way to get a concrete answer is to hire an attorney. And so it's one of those topics that's just so confusing for a lot of people. That's what I would recommend. And this is why I, I say get permission because you don't want to have to be in a, in a position where you're trying to figure out if fair use applies or not. Maroon says, what kind of lawyer should artists hire? Is it full-time or do we hire on a freelance basis? Well, well, the kind of lawyer you hire depends on what you need. So if you need, if you're dealing with um, a copyright contracts, you need an attorney like myself. You need an, someone who focuses on entertainment, focuses on art issues, copyright issues. If obviously if you're, I've had artists come to me and yeah, they're artists by trade, but the issue they're dealing with is um, they want to rent out a space to use as a studio in a residential building and the landlord's fighting with them about 
this, the use of the space. That's not an entertainment lawyer issue. That's a, that's a real estate. That's a landlord tenant issue. And in that case, you would need a landlord tenant law. But it, and, and in fact, I've had clients come to me and they say, I've had, this is very interesting. A couple of years ago, I had a client come to me and say, um, uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker and I'm going to be interviewing uh, someone who is a convicted felon. And there's a chance that I'm, I'm going to be following them. And there's a chance I might film them committing a crime. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and so, and I told them point blank, I said, you need a crim, you need to talk to a criminal attorney, like criminal defense <laughs> attorney. This is not an entertainment issue. This is not an issue of like ownership over the, uh, the footage. This is an issue of whether you, that this makes you an accessory to a crime or not. Um, oh so that's a criminal law issue. So. <laughs> well, if any of you are not following Greg on Instagram, you should, because you'd be crazy not to. He gives out so much information that a lot of you would think, oh, I need to hire an attorney. Guess what? It's right here. The answer is here. Follow him, because I cannot believe that you don't have a billion followers, given well, I did just how start, many. I did just start the Instagram page recently, so. You did, but there are so many artists that need this information. So follow him on Instagram. He also has a wonderful blog. I know somebody in here was asking about NFTs and there's a wonderful article that Greg read about this. He's just, artist dream come true. As far as business goes, there are not a lot of people I know of that have your background. So absolutely check out all of his stuff. The links are all in the YouTube video description below. And remember, we have this previous stream where we dig into plagiarism, collage in terms of fair rights, all that stuff we talk about specific cases like Jeff Koons and Shepard Ferry. So take a look at that stream. And I hope you will join me in the Discord right after the stream. I will be in the post live streams channel to chat about anything, to follow up about anything we didn't get to in the live stream. And remember, there are many ways you can support ArtProf. You can enroll in a premium track. You can buy original artwork by our staff in our Etsy shop. You can purchase an artist call because oftentimes your needs are not addressed in our content. You need something a lot more customized. And we are so happy to have these top Patreon supporters because you know what? Business-wise, I was crunching the numbers the other day and I was like, oh my God, if we did not have Patreon, we would be out right this second. So everybody, thank you for becoming a top Patreon supporter. I'm happy to report we are going up <laughs> this week, not by a lot, but it, it makes me feel better not to dip and lose supporters. So everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.